This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. This episode will be focused on Dennis Nielsen and the book Killing for Company compared to the Sundance TV show Dez and the movie Cold Light of Day, along with the Netflix documentary that just came out. Memories of a Murderer, the Nilsson Tapes. So we got several things that we're going to be talking about and comparing. All right, so Dennis Nilsson's, he's a lot. Let's just jump right in. So first, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you some basics. Then we'll go through Killing for Company because it really delves into his life and gives you details. So we'll go through Killing for Company, and that is functionally my basis. So, you know, every time I start, I have one main thing that I look at first. And that kind of gives me a baseline of what to compare other things to. And we'll do Killing for Company, and then I'll tell you about Des, the show, and then I'll tell you about Cold Light of Day, the Netflix doc- documentary, and then kind of my adventure throughout the whole thing and my final thoughts and things like that. So let's just get into it because it's a doozy. So Dennis Nilsson was 37 years old in London, England, when he was arrested because uh, the drains were clogged at his apartment, and it turns out it was human remains. They were able to identify eight of his victims, but he could have up to 15. This was from 1978 to 1983 that he had done his murders. His nicknames include the Kindly Killer and the Muswell Hill Murderer, based on the location of the murders. Killing for Company is by Brian Masters, is really interesting in that it does delve into lots of stuff. And it's a little bit, it took a little bit of a longer read for me, which is fine because it was full of so much information. And sometimes I know I get a little irritated if it feels like they're just like padding it or there's a lot of extra stuff that I just don't, I just want to get to the details. But in this case, I feel like every page was worth it. Well, first, of course, he starts with how he was caught because that's how, you know, that's the biggest thing is how he was caught was fucking crazy. Then he gets into the history and he doesn't just say... Dennis Nilsson was born in 19... in Scotland and, you know... He starts with his, like, fucking ancestry. <laughs> and I admit, when it first started, I was like, where, where the fuck is he going with this? Why do I need to know about his ancestors? But what's particularly interesting is that his family history is that they were fishermen in Scotland, and so there's a very specific temperament around this community. And there was a lot of inbreeding. So there was a lot, quite a bit of... um mental difficulties and from being maybe low IQ to um, problems with sanity. So it was really interesting to see that the stock that he came from and to maybe kind of start from there and say, well, maybe in a way he was predispositioned, I guess, to have that inclination. So that's just kind of an interesting basis that that um, mental disorders ran in his family. And and a very distant cousin is actually Virginia Woolf. So that is, I don't know, I found that interesting. He was born to Betty White, and it's actually with a Y, but I admit that that tickled me. And, uh, but she was no Betty White, because there is no other Betty White. His dad actually came from, he was Norwegian, and he came to Scotland and met Betty. They had kids. Well, then he basically took off and they ended up getting divorced. He was not really a part of Dennis's life. Dennis, basically, they grew up with his um, grandpa and grandma. They lived with him, and then he had a brother and sister. They weren't really very close. He was kind of a loner. Now, his grandpa was basically his best friend. So they had this bond, and they just hung out together all the time. 
Well, his grandpa dies at sea, and when they bring him back, they don't... Mom doesn't know how to tell, explain to the kids death, because, you know, it's kind of a big thing. So instead, she says he's sleeping, and now at this time, he's five or six, and he sees his grandpa's body in this casket, and that's his best friend. That's, like, his only hero. That's the, you know, his be-all and end-all. And the family was incredibly religious. So basically, the words to him and the other kids were... He's in a better place and he's sleeping. So he was just thinking in his childish mind, you know, well, if he's in a better place, why didn't he take me? Or, you know, if he's sleeping, when is he going to wake up? And then when he just wasn't waking up and wasn't coming back, it kind of fucked with him because he didn't understand the death thing. That was to impact him for the rest of his life. His mom remarried and had four more kids. So he was already feeling like a loner and that made it more profound for him. It does mention that he raised pigeons and that he cared for living things to the point where if something was suffering, he would put it out of their misery. And that's another key point that will carry through in his life. When he was raising these pigeons, one of the other kids killed them just to kill them. And that devastated him, he says, because he didn't understand why you would just kill something that was living and beautiful. We have that set up too. keep that in mind is that he didn't torture animals he cared for animals, which is the opposite, usually for serial killers. He joined the army around 15 or 16, depending on what source you look at, where he started to drink with his fellow soldiers, because that's, that's what they did, is they would drink together. But that is another important thing, is that that was another thing that became a big part of his life, was drinking. He thought it was good to die young, because, you know, you haven't been embittered, you haven't gone through body shit. <laughs> Um, deterioration. He thought, well, you know, you're kind of just trapped in time. And that's another thing. If you if you follow that psychology of his grandpa is is when he saw his grandpa, his grandpa looked peaceful sleeping. So you think, well, if they're in a better place and they're peaceful, then maybe it's best to die before things go too terribly wrong for you. And then you're kind of just, um, you know, exist in time as you are. He did write poetry. And he at a young age, he did start to feel attracted, attracted to other boys. In that time, you know, it was the 50s. He, uh, it was homosexuality was like definitely no, 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 and re repugnant. Well, and then, you know, the way that everybody acted around him, he could just tell that it wasn't okay to have those. So he never pursued it. He just kind of looked at the kid from afar and just was in awe of him. It wasn't until he was in the army where he started to feel a little more comfortable. Now, it wasn't quite as, it was still taboo, I guess, and not really completely accepted. So he still felt separate and he knew that it wasn't something he should be announcing. But he did have his first sexual experience with a boy and it was an Arabian boy that apparently hung out around the barracks and made himself available. And it was not definitely not like an emotional thing, but he got to he finally had sex. He fell in love with another man in the army, but the other man well, of course, when I say man, he was probably a teenager. So he was, it was like he was very in a, a developmental stage where he was heterosexual, but they had this bond. And so the man ended up not reciprocating. Is he, he liked him as a friend and he was, but you know, he was maybe conflicted. So maybe he did have some thoughts, but ultimately he did not want to be in a relationship with Dennis Nilsson. And this crushed Nilsson. And it was basically not one of those things where there was a confrontation or anything. It was just like the guy left the army. <laughs> and so, and again, Nelson never really acted on it. I think maybe at one point they kind of held hands. He also developed this fascination with pretending to be a corpse. And he would masturbate 
while looking in a mirror. And some he would powder himself with talcum powder so he would look pale. And he would lay the mirror so that way you couldn't see his head and it would just be a body. So he, he would see this corpse-like body and he would masturbate. Start. He had crossed sexuality and love with depths, death and corpses. Because, again, it's that the image of this is um, a pristine, passive body. It's like um, there's no rejection. There's no it's just peaceful. And he would honestly even picture himself dead. So it wasn't even just that he thought like of it as a corpse of someone else. It was himself. So he always had these these thoughts of um, wrapping himself in death and the peacefulness and beauty of death. So that's what attracted him. And so he would do that. When he was with this man, this is friend, they used to do videos. And he got into photography and um, making videos of stuff. He would ask his friend to pretend like he was dead. He would film his friend pretending to be dead. And, of course, he would masturbate to it later. This is another big thing, is the pretending to be dead and the mirror and the partner that is passive. He did want a connection with someone, but he didn't know how to go about it, basically, because he felt so apart from people. And, and that's what he was saying, is that it was just easier to, to act on his fantasies and to be in his fantasies than to actually try to. And the, times that, and the time that he felt like he had a chance at a relationship, he, didn't, he was afraid to act on it, and then it got away. He is, was into class, classical music to the point where he would listen to classical music records with people later on, and he listened to it all the time. And the first thing that popped in my head was A Clockwork Orange. And with Alex listening to classical music and having these terrible images in his head of, you know. He was in the army for 11 years, but you see, he enjoyed the camaraderie. He enjoyed feeling like he was a part of things, and he was in the catering part. So he, he actually took care of the food and learned how to butcher which is another important thing. So he enjoyed that and he did well in it. He always had this thing where he had like a social justice warrior inside him. And he would have stayed with the army, but then he was seeing he was seeing the effects of an institution where you are training people to, to act on your whims and that they're not to question you. And he wound up having a big problem with that because he saw some things happening around where he didn't like the knee-jerk reaction of, well, they're telling me to do it, so I'm going to do it. Because he thought the things that they were doing were ultimately wrong. So he didn't want to be part of that system. He left the army and he decided to try being a cop. Because that's another system where you have maybe you can have um, camaraderie and people having your back. And so he became a cop. At this point, he had move, moved to London where it was, there were lots of clubs and it was way more open with sexuality. Now, it was still frowned upon, but there were a bunch of places in the West End where you could go and be with other homosexual people. And it was, you know, no one would give you a hard time or it wasn't like, you didn't feel like you had to hide as much, but in those places. <laughs> but in general, in life, you probably, you did. So it was kind of, you know, one of those things where it was like an underground kind of thing. He actually started taking men home and going home with men and things like that. Well, then when he becomes a cop, then he runs into a situation where, like, two men were fucking in a car. And technically, that's a big no-no that he should have stopped. But he didn't because he felt like a hypocrite. Then he realized, well, maybe my, maybe I'm not fit for this because I don't want to be a hypocrite. According to him, he did, he was doing fine. He didn't, you know, he didn't, I mean, didn't necessarily excel, but he was doing fine. He didn't have any, like, he had, like, a solid record. Didn't really seem to have an obvious reason for leaving, but he just was like, you know what, this isn't for me, and he left. So they're like, okay. I will also add at this point that there were rumors that came out later that when he was a cop, he had access to the morgue, and that supposedly he would go to the morgue, and in 
In this one book, it says he would act out deep-seated necrophiliac urges. Nelson swears he did not touch those bodies. And I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll say why I don't. Just hold that in your mind. <laughs> because that's, this is one of those things that, at this point in this book, he said nothing about touching the bodies or masturbating over the bodies, doing anything with the bodies. And thus far in the book, he's been very vivid <laughs> and descriptive and non-flinching when he talks about what he does and does not do. So at this point, I would be inclined to think that he didn't do anything to the bodies. We'll put a pin in that. He didn't really like the scene because he wanted a, a more com uh, intimate connection. But most of the things happening there were just, you know, hit it and quit it. And just kind of bouncing around and there's not really too much attachments. And, you know, and plus we know he wasn't always great with trying to maintain that thing. So it was a struggle for him. He found out his dad's real last name was not Nelson, and that apparently fucked with him, which is understandable is that you grew up thinking this is your name and this is your identity. But his father's last name was something different. So then he's like, okay, well, maybe I don't even know who the fuck I am. And he goes into depth about just the struggle of feeling already feeling apart and not fitting in and not completely understanding how he fits into things. And, and then always... Always in the back of his mind is the image of his grandpa and the loss of his grandpa and romanticized scenes of his youth, you know, flying kites with his grandpa and being being near the sea. And, and there's a lot with the sea because, you know, they were fishermen, his family. He has a lot of romantic ideas of the sea and they're, you know, even with like drowning himself. And so he's got this romanticized image that he keeps going back to. When he quits being a cop, he becomes a security guard and then he ends up going to unemployment, which was a blow to his ego. But the funny thing is, is when he goes to the unemployment center, he winds up working at the unemployment center, helping people get jobs. He works at this job center, which is actually manpower. And I looked because manpower is obviously there's one here in the States. And manpower did in the 50s expand to England and actually other countries. So it is possible this is the manpower that we're familiar with. He worked at the job center for eight years until he was caught with remains in his drink. At this point, he has... He has an encounter with a guy named David Painter in June 1974, where he had brought the guy home. The guy was sleeping. Des decides to take pictures of him. And so he's taking pictures of him. The guy wakes up and is like, what the fuck is going on? There's he, the guy freaks out. He winds up like putting his hand through the window or bashing the window and getting cut up and, and runs to the police. And then the police are, just think it's a lover's tiff. So they're like, what the fuck ever? Now, what's interesting is that sometimes Nelson doesn't remember details and sometimes he does and you know it's kind of like maybe in and out so the bottom line is he says he wasn't going to he was not intending to hurt the guy necessarily he was just taking pictures and the guy freaked out the cops don't believe him so that's another really big precedent that is set is that's another common theme is the cops don't believe the victim 1975 he met david galichan i apologize if i'm pronouncing that wrong they the night they meet nilson's like hey you just want to move in with me? Should we just start a fa like start a life together? And the guy's like, okay, because he was um he was kind of like a drifter, didn't really have any stability. So you know he saw this guy who had a job and stuff like that, and would help take care of him. And so he's like, sure, let's uh let's domesticate. They move to one ninety five Melrose Avenue. They get a dog named Bleep because of the way that he barks. It sounded like bleeping. So the dog's name is Bleep, which the description in the book is Bleep is a White mongrel bitch with a bad eye. Sometimes I feel like people could describe me that way. 
So they also adopt a stray cat and name him Dee Dee. They have a budgie named Hamish that says piss off. And I didn't I didn't see anything more about another budgie, but apparently he had another budgie named Tweedles. So they had their pet family and they set about putting this house in order. Now, another important thing to note is there was a garden in the backyard that no none of the other tenants were using. And it was just in disarray. So they make an agreement with the landlord saying, if we clean this up, can we have the can we be the ones with the only access to this? This this will be ours and the neighbors can't come and steal our shit that we're growing and, and you can't have access to it because they're not doing any fucking work for it. So they have the agreement. So the garden is theirs and they clean it up and they grow things. And so they have their nice garden. They have this great thing started. Well, the problem is, is they slept in separate beds and Des felt faithful to him. But David, which is nicknamed Twinkle. And I will have a side note that in college, I had a gay friend named Sprinkle. That was his nickname. So I thought that was kind of funny that I knew someone named Sprinkle and he was with someone named Twinkle. Twinkle was not really into the relationship, the monogamous relationship aspect. So he would just do whatever he wanted and Des just kind of put up with it until it started to get to be too much. He actually even took Twinkle to a work outing. Now, in the book, he says that he considers himself bisexual and that... He didn't know whether he should limit himself to the homosexuality, and he was kind of conflicted about that. I think that maybe it could be where in his mind and maybe to others that it's more acceptable to be bisexual because at least you still have the hetero inclination in there. So maybe it's like, oh, you'll still fuck women, so you're okay. I mean, it's weird that you still want to fuck guys too, but at least there's part of you that's normal. You know, so I wonder if that's like his way of trying to make the transition or to deal with the homosexuality is to still have something in there that feels normal. He did take the, and he didn't make, he never made a big deal about it. He just said, you know, this is, he's with me. And was just quietly, people would make a big deal. He's like, yeah, this is my whatever. And so he just kind of would acknowledge it, but not make a big deal. Now he did have sex with a woman when Twinkle was flaunting that he was with other people. Des went out and found a woman and brought her home and was successful in having sex with her. He had a pleasant sexual experience with her. He had had an experience with a, a sex worker in the army, but he said it was really just kind of <laughs> anticlimactic. Like he climaxed, but he was like, it was just so, it was just so routine or, you know, not like a big deal that he didn't really like it. But he was able, he was able to perform. So at that point, when he was able to have a, a good sexual encounter with a woman, that just reiterated to himself, well, I am bisexual. And even bragged, he says he even bragged about it at work to prove to everyone, hey, look, I'm bisexual. Because again, he wanted to seem like he was fitting in. Well, then soon after they broke up, Twinkle left, and then Nilsson started to go down his terrible path. He continued the mirror, mirror ritual where he would make himself look like a corpse and masturbate and totally reinforcing that fantasy. In October 1979, he brings Andrew Ho home with him. They have an altercation. He never made sexual advances and got mad if they rejected him. He freaked Andrew Ho out. Andrew Ho gets away, goes to the cops, and the cops go to Nilsson, like, what's going on? And they believe Nilsson when he says, this guy attempted to rob me, and that's what happened. So again, we see the cops not the cops believing Nelson are not doing anything about it because it seemed like a homosexual thing that they didn't want to deal with. They ignore that. The first person he kills, he had picked up an Irishman from Cricklewood Arms, which is known to be in, you know, a homosexual pub. This is quoting from Killing for Company. He brought the guy home 
the the pattern tended to be they would drink a lot, and sometimes maybe they would mess around a little bit, but it seems like most of the time they didn't. It was like maybe they'd mess around, but then be, they'd be too drunk. So then they'd just pass out. In this case, the guy was asleep, and Nilsson woke up and he was looking at the guy. I was afraid to wake him in case he left me. Trembling with fear, I strangled his struggling body, and when he was dead, I took his young body back to bed with me, and it was the beginning of the end of my life as I had known it. I had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. So that says a lot. That's like everything right there. Well, maybe not everything, but that's, that's the mentality, is killing for company, is I was afraid he'd leave me, so I kept him with me the, the best way that I knew how. Exactly what he did is he, well, the guy's sleeping, he strangles him with a tie, then he takes him to a dining room chair, and he's concerned that he's going to come back to... He, he thinks he's still alive. So he gets a bucket and fills it with water, and then he dunks the guy's head in water until he's dead. Then he gives the corpse a bath. He left, and he went out and got a cooking pot and an electric knife. Now, he wound up not using that electric knife for anything. He does use a cooking pot later for things. But when he gets back home, he dresses the corpse and... At one point, he tried to have sex, penetrative sex with the body, but it was already turning cold and it turned him off. So he did not do that. He lays him on the floor and covers him with a curtain and goes to sleep. The next day, the body's got rigor mortis, so he leans him against the wall because he had heard that it'll wear off after a while. And once he's able to move him a little better, he puts him, he pulls up floorboards and puts him under the floor and calls it his new bed. And I quote, it's under the floor. And then he goes and disposes of the guy's clothes. A week later, he gets the body out of the floor, gives him another bath, masturbates over him, suspends him by the ankles from his platform bed. So he's got one of those platform beds. It's like, um, you know, you have your bed up on, I want to say stilts. It's raised and then, you know, there's room underneath and there's a ladder going up to the bed. So it's kind of a, a bunk bed without the bunk underneath it. He suspended him by the ankles from the platform bed. He masturbated later standing next to him, and then he puts him under the floor for seven and a half months. This first encounter is its fir- his first experience with a corpse. So he has been building up to this his whole life, basically. He, he has been fantasizing about a corpse, and so he has made this corpse for himself. To him, it is no longer a person, in a way. <laughs> so t- to him, it's, it, it's like it's um, it's its own thing that's a beautiful thing that is... A, in a way, it's like it is kind of sacred, but then it's also kind of not because they're not really in there. And he knows that, but he still thinks that it's beautiful. So it's an interesting mentality. He was fascinated by it and he, you know, really looks closely at it and is. But then when he's there, a moment when he's like, well, now it's lost its allure. So now I'm going to put it under the floor. And then maybe, you know, he's like, well, I wonder what it's doing now. And then you take it out and look at it and be like, oh, it's really not too bad. Well, then once he has exercised that curiosity, I guess, he just put him under the floor for seven and a half months and just kind of forgot about it. Like, because again, it's not a thing to him anymore. It's he's gotten what he needed from it. And so his curiosity is satisfied. So he just left him there. Well, then it's smelly. And that's when it gets to him. He finally burns him in the garden in the back. The interesting thing is the day that he burned him is my birthday. It is the literal day of my birth. August 11th, 1979 is when he burnt his first victim in the garden. So something terrible happened that day, but something wonderful happened that day when I came along. 
So now I am here, and it's it's the the weird great magnet cycle of life that now I'm telling you about this thing. What he did is when he burned them in the garden, he also threw a he threw a tire on the fire to try to cover the smell. It turns out later they found out that the victim was Stephen Holmes, who wound up only being 14 years old. Now, he did not know. He thought the guy was like 16, 17, 18. He didn't realize it was that young. Not that it makes it okay to kill him and burn him, but in his thoughts, he didn't realize that the guy was so young. And it's another good thing to pay attention to is that this 14-year-old wound up in this situation. And this is there's a social aspect to this as well that will, is another big part of this that we'll get into. Now, it's also important to note that the part of the reason he was able to get away with having the bonfire and, and all that is that they had a seven-foot fence and there was an empty house next door. So apparently there wasn't it was blocked off enough that even the people living in the apartment didn't really notice or no one could really see or you know if you were paying attention I guess maybe you could have but it was it was easier to just do this and and be able to go about your life. December 1979 there was a Canadian tourist he met named Kenneth Ockenden and they meet at a pub they strike up a conversation and by all accounts he was seemed intelligent and he could be charming and funny. They strike up this friendship they go sightseeing together he invites the guy back to his place. They're having a really good time. And then Nilsson does the thing where he's like, shit, this is going to end. Kenneth is listening to, on headphones, to music. Because again, again, that's another thing that Nilsson was really into, was listening to music and sharing the experience with other people. So often he would listen to records with the people he brought home and things like that. Ken has the headphones on. Nilsson strangles him with a headphones cord and then proceeds to finish listening to the record. He says that he doesn't remember strangling him, but he does remember dragging him around. The ritual that has been established is that then he gives the, bo the body a bath. They snuggled, or he snuggled the body. Then in the morning, he disposed of the clothes. He put Ken's body in the cupboard while he went to work, comes home, and he takes pictures of the body with makeup to remove the color. So again, it's the corpse fascination to the point where he even on a corpse doesn't look corpse-like enough. So he put on makeup to remove color. Then he laid the corpse on top of him while he watched TV. He would talk to the corpse like it was his flatmate. He did have thigh sex, which apparently is called intercrural sex. And it's exactly what it sounds like is the person's thighs are together and you put your penis in between the thighs. And I did learn the word intercrural, which I didn't necessarily need to know, but it's always interesting to learn new things. Then he's done and he puts him in the floor. Again, it's important. The killing for company concept is he talked to him like he was a roommate because he wanted a relationship, but he didn't know how to have a real one. So this is another pattern that starts is that he starts to talk to the corpses and act like they're his roommate. That's exactly when he said I had a new kind of flatmate. And then when he doesn't need him, he puts him under the floor. Well, then he would take him up from the floor four times in two weeks. He'd watch TV with him. He felt that the body was beautiful. And then every night or at night when he would when he would put him on the floor, he would strip him down, wrap him in a curtain and say goodnight to him. So it was like this whole ritual. Another source said that um, he was apparently, Kenneth was 23 years old. This one source said that he succeeded in having sex with the body and made the, and I quote, grand sexual finale. So again, Nilsson did, 
Nilsson just adamantly said he never had sex with the bodies. That's a thing that... So I'm just going to take a second. (laughs) Because I don't want to sound like I'm defending this. I am about trying to stick as close to the facts as we can. And this is one thing that's a problem with this kind of case is right off the bat, you hear he had corpses. So immediately, the sensationalist thing is he fucked the corpses. That's exactly where media tends to take it. It's not interesting enough that he dressed corpses up and had dinner with them and things like that. They have to have him completely have sex with him. And I don't like the sensationalism, so that offends me. And it's, again, it's the, if he did not have sex with the corpses, he did not have sex with the corpses. We don't need that. Let's stick to what he did. And what he did was enough. So that's why I get pissed off when I see things like that he had sex with the body. If he, he insists he did not have sex with the body, and I really think that he would have said, because he said he tried, he told about the thigh sex, you know, he tells about all the other shit. So I think if he did, I think he would have said it because he felt like the bodies were just bodies. I mean, he's very clear they were just bodies. I don't understand why you guys are so offended that I did things to bodies. They were dead. It's not them. Now, if I would have done it to them when they were alive, I get it. So I don't understand why you're mad at me because they're not there anymore. To him, so I really think that he didn't. It's just another example of the sensationalism when you see that interjected in there. He Then he meets Martin Duffy. And it's, again, a case where they meet in like a pub or they you know see each other. They meet around town somewhere. He offers for them to come back to his place, you know, hang out, maybe have something to eat. Well, then during the night, at some point, he strangles him and then he doesn't think that he's dead. So he takes him to the kitchen sink and puts his head in there and he drowns him. So that's another common thing we see is that he will strangle and drown. Then he get this time he gets in the bath with him. So we've seen the ritual of him bathing the body, but now he gets in the bath with him. And this is, again, where it's kind of showing that he's trying to have, like, a n- normal relationship where, you know, you're, you're in a couple and you bathe together and you watch TV together. And he's taking a bath with him, takes the body out of the tub, and he always – he does it where he towels them off. So it's like this whole ritual. Then he talks to him and he caresses him and then he masturbates over him, puts him in the cupboard. He has him in the cup- cupboard for a couple days. He does say he would not think about – the corpses when he was at work. So basically he put him in a cupboard, went to work, just didn't think about it. Did his work day and would come back and be like, oh, that's right. I have a body here. He has him in the cupboard for two days, but then the body starts bloating. So then he puts him in the floor. And now under the floor, it's cooler. So it keeps them more preserved. That's another reason why it w- he liked to keep them under the floor as opposed to the cupboard. Now, Martin Duffy had knives because he was also into catering and he had gotten a, a gift of knives. Nilsson set the knives outside to get rusty because when he disposed of them, he didn't want people to wonder why a perfectly good set of knives was disposed of. Was disposed of. This happened in May of 1980. Martin Duffy was apparently 16 years old. There's a source that says that he was 19 years old and he had sex with it. But that's that same fucking source that says that he had this grand sexual finale. So I'm sorry, but fuck that source. I'm just going to say it. The next victim is Billy Sutherland, who's 27 years old. He met him at a pub. And in this case, so this is one, this is an interesting thing where Nilsson's at a pub. Billy Sutherland comes up and starts talking to him and basically kind of latches on to him. Nilsson tries to leave and the guy follows him, basically like, I got, I got nowhere to go. So Nilsson's like, all right, you can come home with me. He 
doesn't really remember what really happened, but he just remembers he strangles him from the front. This is the first murder that we see where he's done it because he's felt inconvenienced. He didn't have any kind of particular attraction to the guy. He he didn't have the normal feeling of he's going to leave me so I need to kill him. It was more like, I just don't want this guy to be here. So he kills him. That is the first murder we see that is just a murder of inconvenience. He does have some people that escape. So here's another important point. He took a lot of men home with him and a lot of them survived. So there are quite a few men that went to Nilsson's house and had a drink and dinner and went home and lived their life. And there are several where they had attempts on their life made, but they survived. So one is Douglas Stewart, 26 years old, November 1980. He met him in a pub. Now, he's not homosexual. So this is another this is another thing is that the media ran off with the he killed. He only hung out with homosexuals and that they were all homeless drifters, maybe junkies. And this is not true. He Sometimes he would meet them in, in a homosexual pub, but they weren't necessarily all homosexuals. He, you know, sometimes he might just see them, meet them on the street, and they were actually a little more um, arrayed than that. So it wasn't that every single person, he just happened to catch, well, like the guy sightseeing is, they tended to be people who would would not be missed. There is that. So most of them, you could say they were in a situation where they maybe weren't in the best place in their life. And so he was able to capitalize on that. Douglas Stewart goes home with him just, just to hang out. And he drinks a little too much. And Dennis says, do you want to get in bed? And the guy's like, no, I'm not. I'm not that way. So he falls asleep in a chair. Well, then Nelson, he wakes up to Nelson with a tie around his neck, strangling him. He manages to fight him off. And Nelson says, yells, take my money. And the guy's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you were just trying to strangle me. I don't want your money. So he wondered if Nelson was yelling that, so if something happened, he could say it was a robbery. Well, then the guy sees him with a knife, and he's like, whoa, I gotta, like, de-escalate the situation. So he tries to chat with him, and I think maybe he has a drink with him, kind of, like, trying to calm him down because he doesn't want to be attacked with a knife. Finally gets him calmed enough, and he's able to leave. He goes to the cops. The cops think it's some kind of homosexual dispute, and they couldn't trust either person. Again, the cops ignore it. And later when this is mentioned to Nilsson, he says, well, that sounds about right. Like, I don't remember this specific incident, but I would not have tied his legs up. So the guy, when he was, he wakes up and he had his feet were tied together and he was being strangled. Sorry, I forgot to mention that detail. So Des denied that he would have tied his legs or that he would have had a knife, but the rest of it's probably true. So again, Nilsson is also just, seems obsessive about what is the what are the facts? If someone says to him, oh, well, he said this, he'd be like, well, that part's true, but that's not true. So it's very important that we focus on the true things. And yes, I did strangle him, but no, I would not have threatened him with a knife. Yeah. He meets Malcolm Barlow in September 81. He was 24-year-old, which apparently he had, he had grown up in institutions where he might have, might have been uh, mentally handicapped, where he had low intelligence, but was still like able to function and he also had epilepsy. Nilsson found him on the street and he looked like he I think he was like his legs had given out from his epilepsy and and stuff. So Nilsson had him taken to a hospital. Nilsson saw this guy and he's like, this guy needs help, gets him to a hospital and doesn't think about him again. Well the guy knew where he had shown him where he lives, so the guy shows up when he gets out of the hospital. And he shows up at Nilsson's door and Nilsson's like, Alright, come in. We need to see another 
inconvenient visitor. And the guy starts, he insists on having a drink. And Nilsson's like, you have, with your epilepsy meds, I don't think you should drink. And the guy's like, I'm an adult. Let me have a drink. So they're like, okay, fucking fine. So the guy has a drink and then he cannot wake him up. And he wants him to leave. And then he's like, am I going to have to call the fucking hospital again? So he's irritated. So he strangles him. And then he goes to sleep. And the next morning, he puts him under the kitchen sink. Because I believe at this point, he, I, th- I think he had people under the floor and he was running out of space. So he just stuffed him under the kitchen sink and kind of got him out of the way. Another close call. This one just really blows my mind. Paul Nobbs, November 1981. He's a student that skipped out of class to buy some books. He ends up getting a drink, meets Des. Dennis invites him over for dinner. The kid calls his mom a couple of times. So he calls his mom and says, hey, I'm safe. You know, I'll be home in a little bit. Well, then he gets a little too drunk. So he calls his mom and says, no, I'm going st- to stay with my friends and it'll be fine. So Des knows he was there. He used his phone. This guy has a family. So that's an important note. They do the thing where they drink too much and the guy passes out and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he has a really bad headache. So he goes back to sleep. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he looks at himself in the mirror and he, he feels terrible. He looks at himself in the mirror and he's got a red mark around his neck. His face is red. He's bruised and sore. The whites of his eyes are red. And he looks like shit. And he's like, what the fuck? And Nelson's like, oh, you look terrible. Like, I don't know. Like, what is going on? Are you okay? And he acts so genuinely concerned that the guy's like, I don't know. I don't understand what could have happened. And Nilsson's like, hey, you know, maybe you should go to, you know, maybe you should go to a doctor. You need to take care of yourself. He t- walks him to the station and says they agree to see each other again. So he's acting like really concerned. And he had been cool before they went to sleep. So the guy is totally befuddled. He goes to the doctor like, what the hell is going on? And the doctor's like, well, you've been strangled. <laughs> like, these are all the indications. Like, I mean, you still got the mark around your neck. Like, you were strangled. And the guy's, Steve Steve is like, I don't fucking understand. Like, he was so nice. And he was genuinely concerned. How could he have been the one to, he had to be the one that strangled me. What the fuck? He's just completely befuddled. Like, why would the, why would a guy strangle me and then be so concerned that I was strangled? I will say this. Nilsson was the ultimate at gaslighting. I I don't know. It's, there are some people who say, well, he, and, and maybe at one point he might have even claimed that, oh, he remembered that he had a family, so he let him go. But it's a mystery. So he had, he had strangled this guy, but the guy lived. And then he just acted like, oh, which is actually kind of genius. It's again, it's like the Ted Bundy thing is if you keep swearing it didn't happen, people will doubt it because you're so adamant. But now I say he's the ultimate at gaslighting, but in Killing for Company, the whole idea is Nilsson trying to figure out if he's sane or not. As he doesn't think that he's insane, but he wants help finding out because he doesn't, he knows that some of what he's doing, a lot of what he's doing is fucked up, but he doesn't feel insane. And the stuff kind of makes sense to him, but it kind of doesn't. Like he's like, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, hey, it's just me. I've done these good things. I've helped people out, but how could I kill a man? How could I keep the corpse around my house? Like, how could I do that? To him, it might not be gaslighting, is in his mind, at least at this point in this book, he he has a moment where he's not he's not planning to kill them. It's the first time he kills, he's like, I don't know where that came from. Like, he, I, he looked like he, he, I was afraid he was going to leave me, so I did it. And then I was kind of like, what the fuck? I don't even know. And then he, but then once it's done, he's like, well, maybe I got that out of my system. I don't, I don't know what that was. But I'm not going to do that again because I didn't even know I was going to do it the first time. Well, then what happens again, he's like, shit, huh? So what is this? Is I'm not planning on killing them, but 
then it happens. So in his mind, it's something triggers him and he does it and he's not premeditatedly planning it. It happens in the moment. And and then he reminds himself, well, you know, I had just for example, let's say I had three men over this week. All of them are alive. Why did I kill this one person? He was struggling with whether he should turn himself in. But then there's that struggle for survival. Like, well, well I, I don't think I'll do this again. I'll just I just won't do it again. And I've got my dog, him and his dog were, I mean, they were always together. He loved that dog. And so he was like, well, it wasn't for bleep. Maybe I would have turned myself in, but I got to be there for bleep. So, you know, there's always reasons not to turn himself in. And he was just convinced, well, maybe I won't do it again. So that's, that's another important, in this point, he genuinely does not understand his own behavior. And that's the whole point of the book is he's trying to figure out why, why he's doing these things and his inclinations. So when I say that he's ultimate at gaslighting, that is looking at it, looking at it as if he is a sane person. And if he's not a sane person, then to him, it's just maybe he had that fit where he tried to kill him because he had that. And then he realized, fuck, I'm doing it again. Or maybe the guy just wasn't dying. And so he's like, you know, something happened where he just decided, fuck, I, I shouldn't kill this guy. And then then he probably was concerned because he... In general, when he's being his rational self, I guess, he is caring. You know, he got that guy in ambulance and he had been known to do helpful things for people. He may have been genuinely concerned that he just tried to kill this guy. And he was so befuddled that he's not going to be like, oh, I did this. I'm so sorry. It's easier to just pretend like he doesn't know what happened. And maybe, you know, like, because in his mind, he doesn't. He doesn't know why he just tried to kill that guy. So to him, he just acted like... He wasn't sure what was going on, so he just... And maybe he was even trying to block it out. Like, I didn't just do that. I didn't try to kill him. You know, just to try to keep his peace of mind. Apparently, Nobbs, Stephen Nobbs, was, and I quote from one of the sources, a drag artist, which comes out later in the show Des, and I'll, I'll mention it more then. And that's another thing where he didn't report it because... He was he was surprised, you know, like Steve Nobbs is like, I don't I don't know what happened. Like, did he did he try to kill me? And he's like, if I go to the cops and they especially if he dresses in drag and performs, he's definitely on the list of people they're not going to trust or take seriously. He's just going to risk embarrassing himself and being treated like shit. And they're not going to believe him and it's not going to go anywhere. And he can't even really say for sure what happened. Now, between 80 and 81, there are seven men that he doesn't remember names and identities. I didn't, you know, uh, names and stuff. He knows things like there was a skinhead and they had, he had a tattoo on his neck that said cut here and had dashes, which in this case, he actually does end up cutting, dissecting the guy. He washed him in a basin and had intercrural sex with him. So um, he remembered that much. There was a long haired hippie guy. There was a man that was super skinny that he was strangling. And while he was strangling him, the guy was cycling his legs like he was on a bike. There's an unidentified man that he says he washed him to purify him. So this just kind of puts a label on why why does he wash them? And there's a, a note where it's to purify. It's, you know, it's to purify them. It's to purify him because he often took a bath to either during or after. He dressed him. He snuggled with him. Now, he claims at this point that he was crying and says, don't worry, everything's fine. Sleep. And then he has thigh sex, masturbates and snuggles some more. So it's interesting here that he says that he was crying and says, don't worry, everything's fine, because he doesn't usually express remorse. I don't know. But if he was conflicted, 
then I'm sure there were probably moments where he did feel like crying. In the morning, he thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and he kind of pushes the body off of him. But then he puts the body in the cupboard and uh, keeps it out there for about a week before he puts him into the floor. I'm going to read this little section just because I think it's important for you to see how he was thinking of this and how he expressed himself in this book. He says, Getting up in the morning, I put him sitting naked in the cupboard and went to work. I never thought of him again at work until I came home that evening. I got dressed into my jeans, ate, and turned on the TV. I fed Bleep and the cat. I opened the cupboard and lifted out the body. I cleaned him up. I dressed him and sat him in front of the TV in the armchair next to mine. I took his hand and talked to him my comments for the day with cynical remarks about the TV programs. Bleep would find a cozy corner and behave as if he were not even there. Perhaps life to a dog means something warm. I would also take him on the armchair with me and hold him safe and secure. I placed him on the table and slowly stripped him. I would always remove his socks last. I would closely examine, slowly, every part of his anatomy. I would roll him onto his stomach and do likewise to his back. His naked body fascinated me. I remember being thrilled that I had full control and ownership of this beautiful body. I would fondle his buttocks and it amazed me that there was no reaction from him to this. I was fascinated by the mystery of death. I whispered to him because I believed he was still really in there. I ran my fingers all over his body and marveled at its smooth beauty. If he were there in there alive, it was obvious that his penis was irrevocably dead. It looked so small and insignificant. I would hold him towards me standing up and view in the full-length mirror my arms around him. I would hold him close often and think that he had never been so appreciated in his life before. After a week, I stuck him under the floor. Three days later, I removed him only once. I wanted him to lie there underneath in a bed of white roses. He says, I believed he was still really in there. And I think that it's vital to see this snapshot because it's, again, that romanticism. It's he's caught up in the moment. He's got this beautiful body with him and he he understands that the person's not in there, but there's a part of him that's caught up in it that, well, maybe he is in there and maybe because he still wants that companionship. So even though on, on, a, on the basic level, he understands the guy's not in there, there's a romantic thought that maybe he is in there, but he's quiet and I can do whatever I want. And so it's like having companionship without the imposition of someone else's will, you know, but it's not that hard and that defined. It's, it's all very romanticized. So he has, you know, I mean, he's watching TV. He's, you know, he's treating this like it is <laughs> his second half. But then you also see where he, it is, a, it, it is a thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's because he takes it out when he wants it and then he puts it away. It's like this beautiful trinket. And so he's able to forget about it because it's just a thing. And again, and then we have, you know, I wanted him to lie there under in a bed of white roses. So we've got all this romanticism. He builds this all up in his mind. He finally, at 195 Melrose, he realizes that he's got too many bodies. Like the bodies didn't really bother him until they were stinky and then he was running out of places to put them. So then he had a big bonfire. He had kept some in a, he chopped them up. So he went through this whole thing where he chopped them up and, and then... He, he put some in a suitcase and put the suitcase outside in this unlocked shed and then covered it with stuff. And that was there for a while. But then finally he had this big bonfire and he just burned everything. In September, October 1981, he moves to 23 Cranley, which becomes infamous. There's a book called Serial Killers, The Insatiable Passion by David Lester, PhD. And the cover is actually the stairway to 
well, from Nelson's apartment. So it's this really like gloomy, ominous looking stairway. And it is the cover of the book. So he moves to Cranley and he thinks, well, I don't have a garden. I don't have flo- uh, floorboards. You know, like I don't have any place to store bodies. So this will stop me. Like surely I'll stop now. And then he meets John Howlett. They had met once where they talked at a pub and then just went about their ways. Well, then they ran into each other again a few months later. So then he invites John back to his place for dinner. The guy falls asleep and didn't want to go home. He's like, fuck, again, it's an inconvenience. I didn't want him there. He sees this loose upholstery strap, grabs it, strangles the guy. The guy breathes. He strangles him again. He still hears a heartbeat. So then he puts him in the bath all night long to drown him and goes to sleep. So this is the, what, third death of inconvenience. So he has moments that aren't quite the, I woke, I woke, I realized they were going to leave me. It's the, they're inconvenient, so I'm going to take care of them. But he did say that when he did that, it was because he felt sorry for them. It was a mercy. So like the guy with epilepsy is, well, he obviously had a miserable life. So I put him out of his misery. And that, that was his thoughts is that when he would kill when it was inconvenient, it was it was also a mercy to them. The next one is one that really gets me, gets to me. Um, it's Carl Stodder, 21 years old, unemployed. They met at the Black Cap. He went home with him. He was asleep. All of a sudden, he realizes that he can't breathe. He hears Nelson saying to him, keep still. Then he realizes that he's in a bath. He feels water. And that he's being pushed under several times and he's trying to beg for, you know, mercy. Well, then he finally realizes it's over. I'm and he kind of resigns because, you know, you've tried several times and obviously this is he can't breathe. There's a lot. So he gives in and he's like, well, I guess this is my death. Well, then next thing he knows, he feels a dog licking his face and then he keeps getting in and out of consciousness. And when he comes to Des is like, oh, my God, like you look you look terrible. What is happening? You know, I don't, you know, he revives him and then he nurses him back to health. Like he literally puts on a heater and starts rubbing him, his legs and stuff to get his circulation. He takes care of him and then he sees him off, walks him to the station and said, oh, hopefully we can see each other again. Well, then he, Stoddard went directly to the hospital. Like, like I feel terrible. I don't know what's going on. So again, we have this case where he's asleep. Someone had been kind to him. The person he was with had been totally normal, had been kind to him. He goes to sleep and then all of a sudden he feels like he can't breathe. He's got, and then he's in and out of consciousness. So he's kind of like, did I dream this? Because when he came to, Nilsson was genuinely concerned about him. He was trying to make him feel better. He was like, and so Nilsson didn't make a big deal about it. He was just made sure he was okay. And then the guy went about his business. So then he's like, he went to the a hospital and they said, well, it looks like you've been strangled. But then he was like, no, it couldn't have been because he didn't want to deal with the police. Because, again, like it's it would be his word against Nilsson's. And he didn't have any he didn't have any firm details. Like he was like, I was asleep and then I think I was being drowned. And I, I don't know. So he even was able to convince himself maybe it didn't happen. Like it doesn't make sense. Why would he kill me and then bring me back? Boy, this just doesn't make sense at all. So I must have dreamt it fucking heartbreaking because he convinced himself it didn't happen then later when the cops come and start interviewing him and they start because um dennis remembers him and he's like oh yeah there was this guy that this happened and this is his name and so the cops go to him and say hey do you know this guy and he's like i don't know i'm not sure what you're talking about so they're interviewing him, and as they're interviewing he, they mention 
the bath. And he's like, I, I never really told anyone. I've never told anyone about this. And I, I didn't say anything about the bath. And that they knew that, then he was like, fuck, this really did happen. And he starts remembering. He's like, I didn't think this really happened. And so that was a very traumatic thing that he was finally, he did get confirmation this did happen to you. Then the next death was Graham Allen. He calls it the omelet death. Because when the guy was over, he was hungry, and so Nilsson offered to make him an omelet, and the guy was sitting there eating, and he said, well, I don't know, he was eating, and then um, the next thing I know, like, he was dead, and so I don't know if he choked on the omelet, but but then he had red marks around his neck, so omelets don't make marks, so I guess I did it. This is literally, like, the way he says it, is, well, omelets don't make marks, so I must have done it. The final victim was Stephen Sinclair. 20 years old. He, Nelson had seen him on the street. He was a, a drug addict that would all, was also known to slice his arms. And he mentioned he hadn't really eaten. So he bought him food. He took him home. Well, the guy, the guy did get some more drugs and ends up shooting up at Nelson's place and then passing out a chair. And Nelson says that he, he had seen him in the chair looking so sorrowful and miserable. And he felt sorry for him. So he strangled him. He says, I entertain no thoughts of harming him, only concern and affection for his future and the pain and plight of his life. I saw him in the early hours of the morning at peace in my armchair through a drugged haze. I remembered wishing he, he would stay in peace like that forever. I had a feeling of easing his burden with my strength. He lay there. I later became aware of him still there, and I felt relieved that his troubles were now over. He looked, and then later he gives him a bath and towels him dry. He looks really beautiful like one of those Michelangelo sculptures. It seemed that for the first time in his life, he was really feeling and looking the best he ever did in his whole life. I wanted to touch and stroke him, but did not. I placed two mirrors around the bed, one at the end and one at the side. I lay naked beside him, but only looked at the two bodies in the mirror. I just lay there and a great peace came over me. I felt that was it, the meaning of life, death, everything. No fear, no pain, no guilt. I could only caress and fondle the image in the mirror. I never looked at him. No sex, just the feeling of oneness. I had an erection, but he felt he was far too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of co commonplace sex. Afterwards, I dressed him in my clothes, which remained on him until many days later. You have the romanticizing of what happened. And it's important to note, too, that he says, I dressed him in my clothes, which remained on him many days later. Because later he does say that when he was killing these people, that it was like he was killing himself. But you can only kill yourself once. So he, he didn't want to kill himself. He, you know, so you can see that he's kind of putting himself in their place. At least that's what he's saying. Several of these he has very, he remembers very detailed things. But most of them he just has hazy recollections, just like he was Irish or, you know, um, just bits and pieces. He says that he had limited sex with six of them, none with nine of them. He would masturbate over them and have intercrural sex, but he would never penetrate before, after, or during. So a lot of these men he didn't even have sex with. He did use the mirror with those six men that he did do something around or, you know. He said that he felt that it was a compulsion and that it was a mercy for him to be killing them. Masters goes into the theory, like, okay, let's explore the options because we're trying to figure out if he's sane or not. He, was he possessed? And he goes through, like, you know, if you, if you define it this way, then maybe he could have been. And so it's just interesting to go down that path if you want to follow all the options. And Nelson reiterates he doesn't feel mad, but obviously there's something going on. He wants to try to figure it out. He goes into some of the details, like, 
the sm- when the smell would get bad, he would he would have spray and then deodorant sticks twice a day. So he would put deodorant tablets or deodorant sk- sticks on the bodies and and things like that until he disposed of them. He kept some of their things, and it didn't bother him. And that it wasn't theft because I quote, they hadn't really gone away. So again, you see that th- the thought where they're not they're not really a th- they don't matter anymore. So I can have their stuff because they don't matter. They're not alive. And if they're technically here, then technically. So there's a lot of technically. He claims that he had moments of remorse and suicidal thoughts, which Masters is like, I don't know. That could be him trying to interject some kind of sympathetic thing in there to try to make himself look, feel and look better. But he did save that guy. So maybe the way that Nilsson expressed it is, I feel a personal remorse not open to public expression. So that's another thing is that maybe if he does feel remorse, he's not going to share it with anyone. And there are some people like I've seen someone that where their mom just died and they're like at the hospital and they're like, OK, I'm going to go now. And the rest of the family's like, what the fuck? Like your mom just died. Like you're not going to cry. You're not going to. But he needed to grieve pr- privately. So it's possible that I guess if he felt terrible that he only knew how to do that in private. Because certainly one of the things noted about him is he never seemed remorseful to other people. He reiterates he didn't go out looking for them and that more left safely than didn't. When he's on trial, it's very important to note that they had to decide, not that he did it because he said he did it. It was that, was it premeditated? Because his thought was it could be diminished capacity. So there's a thing where you can be sane. And this is, again, this is in London. So I don't know. It's different in the States. You can be sane and then have a moment where you do something insane with diminished capacity. And then you're sane again. So the, the, whole, the trial hinged on, okay, we're not deciding if he did it or not. We're deciding if he, basically, if he was sane when he did it or not. And that's what they had to decide. If It was, it was kind of like, it's basically like pleading in, in the insanity thing. Because it's possible that then maybe he'd go to a mental institution and maybe get out later and not be stuck in jail for the rest of his life. He claims that he killed to, quote, keep something terrible from happening. And the something terrible from happening is apparently, I mean, it makes sense it would be him mentally having a break is if he didn't kill then mentally he would break so when he would strangling these people he was thinking this is going to prevent something terrible from happening and and that's because inside himself he felt like something terrible was happening and he had to relieve it so that's part of the justification of the diminished capacity is is he was doing it in real and at the time he felt like he had to do it it was a compulsion that he had to release this pressure so it didn't get worse and destroy him. The defense had to come up with whether it was premeditated or not. So that was their, the burden on them is to figure out what was, what can we prove was premeditated? Like one was he claimed that he just brought people home and then just did it on a whim. Well, apparently one victim, he had a string with a tie attached. So the tie wasn't long enough, so he added a string. And they were trying to figure out, well, when did you do that? Did you do that when you were, you know, like right before, when you decided to kill him? Was that already done? How far in advance did you make that? Because that was an implement. It didn't come like that. We can understand if you just grabbed a tie and did it. But if you have to put something together, how soon in advance? And then like, or even thinking the the knowledge that what you're doing is wrong is he let that guy's knives rust because it would look bad. People might notice. So it was kind of like being aware of what you're doing or not. The, he goes more into the wasn't bo- bothered by the bodies until he ran out of space. So he goes into the, the first bonfire. He The first victim he burned in the bonfire. The second and third he cut up and put in a suitcase. Later, he didn't have room 
So he put arms and hands in a bush for over a year. Then he put the bodies in the bonfire. So he would dissect them with a kitchen knife, an ordinary kitchen knife, which I would think that takes some doing. But again, he had some training in butchery from the army. Um, I'm not going to go into the details because we have a lot to cover. But basically, he would cut them into pieces. He got so he would he would boil their heads to boil the flesh off the skulls. And then he would take their innards out and put them in the gaps between fences because they were organic. So the, I believe he calls them wee beasties, would come and eat that stuff. They started to get annoying. So he cut them up and for a while he, he stored them. And then he finally decided to do a bonfire where he put their pieces. And he remembered it was when he was doing the bonfire that he realized, oh, shoot, I have those arms and hands in that bush. I need to grab those. I mean, <sighs> he would forget that he had bodies in his place. He would open a cupboard and two legs would fall out on him. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. I forgot about that. So he was able to compartmentalize. Now, at the new place, he wasn't able he didn't have luxury of, of having like any places to really hide them very well. So he would he would cut them up and he would boil them and stuff and he would try to flush them. So he'd flush them down the toilet and then he would have like bones and body parts. And like he had a tea chest where he'd keep body parts and just different places in his place. He would keep the body parts and he would just put spray and deodorant on them. The body parts, the flesh clogged the drain. And then the neighbors were like, well, I can't use my toilet. The sewers clogged. When they finally come, they're like, oh, there's, um, this doesn't look like normal stuff. And this looks like it could be human. Well, it happened at night. So Nilsson was like, fuck. And he goes down and he tries to get out as much of the evidence as he can. Well, neighbors hear him. Well, they hear someone scuffling about in the sewer. <laughs> And when they open the door, Des is coming into the house and they're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, oh, I was just out to have a pee since the toilets aren't working. And they're like, okay. Well, the next morning when they show up, they're like, where the fuck's the stuff? The neighbors say, I saw this guy do this. And they were able, still able to pull some stuff out of the drain that looked like human remains. They test it and it's human remains. They had the neighbors testify, you know, a testimony that Nilsson had been heard at the scene removing evidence. So when he comes home from work, they're waiting for him. Now, he knew at this point it's probably over. So he's thinking, okay, maybe it's good that it's over. Maybe now we can just, I can put an end to it. I can stop doing this shit. I can maybe figure out what's going on. So maybe I should just be resigned to it. Well, the cops are like, hey, um, there's a problem with your drain system. And he's like, oh, you know, why do the cops care? And the cops are like, well, it was a person. <laughs> you know, like it was body parts. And he's like, oh, that's terrible. So they go up to his apartment and they smell the smell and they're like, OK, stop messing around. Where's the bodies? And he's like, there's some of the tea chest over there and then in the wardrobe over there. And he just and then at that point, he just starts talking and he's like, you know, when he gets in the cop car, they're like, so what are we looking at? Is there one or two bodies? What's happening? He's like, oh, well, I think there's been 15 or 16 over the past four years. And they're like. Okay, now it would be maybe easy to be like, well, maybe he's exaggerating, but they did just find some parts in his house that at least leads to one or two people. So, you know, maybe he wasn't exaggerating. He considers that the day that help arrived. It goes through a thing where he decides to, he has a solicitor or attorney. He fires him because he wants to handle him himself and then he ends up getting a solicitor. So it kind of goes back and forth between whether he has representation or not. They end up ruling that he was guilty of... All of the of six of the murders, they were able to pin six to him and then two attempts. So the others, they didn't pursue because they figure we have him on six, you know, and they were having trouble identifying some of the other ones. 
We ends up getting life. I will say, reading Killing for Company, I I don't want to say I felt for Nelson, but the way that he described things, it sounded like it made sense. Like I could see things from his point of view. And Masters was really good at trying to be impartial and say, okay, if this is what the, if if this if what he's saying is true, then let's go on that. And even if what he's saying isn't true, let's look at this. Could this be true? And if this isn't true, why is it important? You know, what can we learn from that? I think he did a really good job at analyzing everything. And it was reading everything from Nilsson's point of view and then Master's explorations. I honestly was conflicted over whether he could have been, had diminished capacity, is whether he really did exist in the state of where it was this compulsion that he really didn't know it was going to happen until it happened. And then after it happened, he didn't know how to deal with it. And that the compulsion was such that even though he knew it was wrong to keep bodies in the house, because obviously he knew it was wrong to keep bodies in the house because he hid them and did things to try to conceal it from people. But the compulsion was so strong that he needed to have those with him. He didn't know how to and he didn't know how to go about getting help. In some ways, I could see and I know that mental health isn't as cut and dried as all that is. It's very complex. And that's the, the biggest problem is it's not just like you're smart. You're, ins- you're sane or you're insane. There are just degrees of every fucking thing. And so it is confusing. And, and I, I was confused by, by the end of it. And when I read it, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if he's completely whether he had diminished capacity. There's obviously things that are wrong with him that are off. But is he in charge of his actions or not? Because if he has compulsions, then maybe that means he, he needs treatment. He needs medicated. He needs help, which means that it's insane. You know, the, the diminished capacity. So he should go to a mental hospital. On the other hand, the way that he's able to coldly look at everything and function that way, I can see where he maybe is sane and that he should go and be in jail because he had moments where he could do things. And and, and that whether it was a compulsion or not, when he knew that he kept doing it, I think that he was sane enough to get help. So, yeah, it's it's was he sane enough to get help at that point? So that's the confusion is is was he sane enough to understand and be able to get help for the compulsion that he had? kind of glossed over it. He did also have a lot of dealings with the union and he got heavily involved with the union while he was at the job center to the point where he was a great uh, champion for it. He would he would fight and fight for it and he had he was known to he would be irritating because he was unbending. So it was noble, I guess that he was really he would really believe in these causes that he would fight for, but he would be basically like a pain in the ass about it and he wouldn't listen to other sides and so he kind of became an irritant to his employers because they're like, we don't care if you have this cause, but do you have to be such a dick about it? You know, like he was known to, he would get on a point. And it's like what I said earlier is it's these details. Like I would strangle, but I would not tie them up. So it would be that way with political things. And so he would just adamantly insist. And just like the idea of things he would do to the bodies he was just passionate about, I don't understand why you're judging me for what I did to these bodies when they're dead. He really, he just did not see the other side. That's another aspect of him. And so he could be very, I want to say cheeky, but that also implies that there is, a, you know, in there, whether it's right or wrong. So you're being cheeky about it, or it, you could look at it as he's just blindly stubborn. So that's another important thing to keep in mind that he, he was like. 
Moving on to Des on Sundance. It's three episodes, 2020, David Tennant plays Des. And I will admit, like, when I watch Doctor Who, I watch it for a few seasons, I really love David Tennant. And I admit that it's kind of hard to look at David Tennant and not be like, oh, it's David Tennant. He's so cute. So it was weird to see him as a serial killer. So I really had to kind of like, okay, no, no, it's not David Tennant. Focus on the performance. And uh, he was fucking great. He was phenomenal, of course. So let me walk you through the show. And I am going to, spoiler, I am going to tell you shit that happens in the show. Episode one. They really focus on the homeless problem. So it opens with the whole idea of you've got this strata of society where you have people that are basically just walking around. No one's paying attention to them. Something happens to them. No one knows. So you you have this whole system set up where, well, there's not a system. It's just it's kind of just people just are there. And and so they, they kind of highlight that because that's a, a big issue. And one of the main questions is, how do you get away with it for so long? And it's because of this problem where you have people who aren't being paid attention to and their plights, no one cares. It does say, based on a true story, some names have been changed and some scenes and characters created for the drama. So there we go. I like it when they're in front about that. They do have a cop named Jay that is called to Cranley because there's a blockage. They show his windows open, which is he did always keep his windows open because of the smell. They were waiting for him to come home. He is wearing a white and blue scarf. And that is important because I don't remember if it was the last victim, but he took his white and blue scarf and was wearing it. So he was wearing one of his victim's items on the last day of freedom. So he's walking around wearing his victim's scarf and they show that. So that's an important, I like it when they show those, those kind of details. I have the same dialogue with the cop that I went over. They do show the dog. He does have a Scottish accent, and so I had never really heard Nilsson speak before. So I was curious whether, I'm assuming that would be a thing because I would assume they usually try to make it accurate, although I do know that Tennant is Scottish. So, but I've heard him do, he does an English uh, American accent in Doctor Who. So so he had a very thick Scottish accent to the point where sometimes I had trouble understanding him. Side note, Nilsson does have a Scottish accent. Or did. He's dead now. They find the remains. They do have quotes in there that that I know recognize from the book is that he he mentions that he the dissecting never bothered him because it was quote the cleanup after the feast um, when they asked him how many he would have bodies he would have in his house at one time he said he never did a stock check and when they said why did you do it he says I don't really know I was hoping you could tell me they d- definitely had some of those in there that were definite quotes when he's at the police station, they have a montage of him just going on and on, like, number three, I just remember bits and pieces. And number 11 was a skinhead with a tattoo that said cut here. And and then the omelet with a red marks comment. And so they have this montage where he's just kind of, and the cops are like, what the fuck? Because that's that's how it happened is that once he got talking, he was like, I want to keep talking. And he would just, you know, number 11, number three, and he would just kind of, you know, so it was really just like a, a roller coaster. Like, what the fuck? They're just kind of hanging on and trying to take notes and while he's rambling. He does go over details that I remember from the sources that I looked at, which I did look at. And I will try to list them on the site, but I looked at like a dozen books. I have like a dozen books that had information and I, you know, checked all those. He, they do have that They show the pot on the stove where he was boiling heads. They showed bags of body parts. One of his victims, he had mentioned that had urinated while he was on him strangling him and that the jeans were tight. They mentioned the tight, wet jeans and that he had cut himself. So they mentioned that. 
Now, in this, he remembers Stephen Sinclair's name because the biggest problem was that he was having trouble remembering names. I don't know all of those details as to what clued them in on what and when. So I don't know for sure if it was Steve, he remembered Stephen Sinclair's name or if that it was something else, because I think later on I'll get into they might have identified him by a fingerprint. The details as to how they figured out who was who, I don't know if those are completely accurate, but I don't know that that completely matters. It just the whole thing just shows they had victims but they didn't have names. They had to kill her, but they had to figure out the victims. And he was trying to help because, you know, he's going on about, well, I remember this and I remember that. And he remembered some names. But so the whole thing just shows no matter how they were figuring out who they were, that this is the process that they had to go through. He fires a solicitor. They do reference he's listening to the Tommy album. And that is something that he mentions in the book. They show one cop saying to another that the reason why he left the cops is because he was caught masturbating in the morgue. So again, that shows the rumors that were going around at the time. What I liked is they show the cops going to visit Stephen Sinclair's parents. And so you get to see the parents' reaction and see the interactions with the cop, uh, with how the parents were reacting to what was going on with their missing son. A man comes to the cops and says that Nelson tried to kill him. They had met at the Golden Lion. He woke up with his ankles tied, being strangled with a tie. When he fought, Nelson yelled, take my money. And this had happened three years before. He had gone to the cops, but they thought the story was just a tiff, like a lover's quarrel, so they didn't want to get involved. That is very obviously Douglas Stewart. Then they show at the end of the episode, Brian Masters is starting to talk to him. So it is a great point to mention that this series is based on Killing for Company, which once I found that out, because I just knew that there was a documentary about Dennis Nelson with David Tennant. I just knew that was on there. So when I tuned in and it said, oh, it's based on Killing for Company by Brian Masters, I was like, well, that's fucking perfect because I just read the book. I was really intrigued to see how how they fit the book with the show and how much they use as this is a reference and what they were able to add beyond the book. So I was really intrigued that they actually showed Brian Masters in it because I thought when it said based on it they would just basically that's like hey we got all the information from here I didn't expect him to be in it that was a really interesting thing to see is to have Brian Masters actually show that relationship and that was one of the tools they used to help um, build the story and flesh things out episode two he confesses to 15 murders and seven attempted so he's very clear like oh I tried seven and you know and he tried to be give as many details as he could in the show they have someone had found the knives and recognize him as being Martin Duffy's. Nelson remembers Ken Ockenden. And this was a really huge thing in the show, which it's referred to in the books, but it was interesting to see how it was handled in the show because Ken was, was the only one that was reported missing and was a big deal because he was a tourist from Canada. So his family actually said he was missing and they did a search into him. Like the police did this big search and weren't able to find anything. I think they had basically closed the books on it. So then to have Nilsson saying, oh, I killed Ken Ockenden was a big fucking thing because they're like, no, 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 we already figured that out. This is already under the bridge. Like, we can't dig- dredge this up again. It's like this whole big to-do. But Jay, the cop, is like, he's saying it. Like, he hasn't lied about anything else. And so then he's charged with, well, you have to prove it. So that's another big piece to this is is trying to figure out how to prove this victim. They do show what he created that were called sad sketches where he sketched out the bodies in the wardrobe or in the floor and like his thoughts and little poems with them so and they do show and they are the book the pictures that he drew that are in the book they show those talks about his grandpa and then pretending to be a corpse 
And this is when he's discussing things with Brian. The reaction from the actor playing Brian is just phenomenal because it's now in the book, Master Brian Masters says, I never felt uncomfortable with him. I just felt very, he was very laid back and I was just able to, I was never felt threatened or, you know. So to see a reaction, I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know that Masters would have reacted because he was busy absorbing everything and looking at things analytically. But that's when I realized that the Brian Masters in this show is not necessarily the Brian Masters in real life. So they are not taking it from, we are accurately going to depict Brian. We are going to use him as a surrogate for the audience. Let's put the audience as Brian. And how would the audience, how would the average person react to being told that someone pretends to be a corpse and masturbates? And that's what gets them off. That whole aspect. So it's just he looks confused and befuddled and, you know, shocked. It's just a great reaction. And I think that it is a genuine reaction that most people would would have in that. And maybe not everyone. And, and it depends. But But I think that they... I understand why they did that. Now, I think I'm, I don't know Brian's opinions on this. I tried to find it. And the one article I found I would have to pay for. And it was like this whole big thing. I would think that Brian would be understanding it and know what they were going for. I think basically you knew at that point, this isn't supposed to be like Brian Masters biography. This is, you know, they're, they're using that to help the audience identify it and to lead that way. Then they start identifying like John Howlett and Graham Allen. The cop talks to Brian. And, and, and it's interesting, too, because reading the book, I'm just reading the book and I'm not really thinking of I'm thinking more about Nelson and the things he's saying. But it was actually <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think about it, but he shouldn't have been talking to the guy who's on remand. The fact that you have because when someone is taken into custody, they're not supposed to be able to talk to the press or anything. Well, he didn't realize that because he had never written um, a true crime type thing before. So he naively just wrote to the guy like, hey, I'd like to cover your story. And apparently the jail didn't know what was going on until way later. (laughs) So he claims that he didn't know that that was a no-no. The cop goes to Masters and like, I think this is deplorable that you want to talk to this asshole. You have to tell me if he divulges anything. And then you see that that pool between the person who wants to understand and the person who just wants to get justice. And whether, you know, does that have to be at odds and who is really, you know, so it's again, you see that the plight of that. They show him talking, does talking again, and he does a thing where he lumps himself in with his victims. He does a thing where he's talking about the injustice of of society, because, again, he has this social justice warrior aspect in him where he's like, you have a thing where you can have people run away. You can have people on the streets, homeless people that aren't getting any kind of help and no one knows when anything happens to them. So you have your people like Stephen Sinclair and, you know, and me and then, you know, names another victim. So he lumps himself into. So he basically feels like he's one of the people that are a victim of this flaw of society, which is another interesting aspect of his mentality. There is there's another great shot of Brian looking overwhelmed at the shit that <laughs> Nelson is saying. They wind up finding a partial print on a page of a book that is Ockenden's. Again, I don't know if that actually happened, but at, at least it's, you know, again, it's trying to show the process of how difficult it was to identify victims and pin them to him. They decide now there's just this moment where the the main cop, Jay, he is hurting 
to try to get these victims closure, to find out who these victims are and to give their families closure and to get justice. There's a moment where the his bosses are like, well, you know what? We've got him on six murders. It's spent a lot of money and he's going to do time anyway. So even if we pin more on him, it's not like he's going to do more time. So we're just going to cut it. We're not going to try to figure any more victims. We're not going to try to we're not going to charge him for anything else. And it's done. And you could just the look on Jay's face and just the feeling of injustice and that there are people that we won't know if he if they were killed by him. And so they won't we won't have that closure. Their families won't have that closure. He's like, this is bullshit. We owe that to them. And they're like, no, we don't. Oh, shit. We, he will be able, he will go to prison. That's, that's what is the important part is. And I will say, it made me want to cry. Like, I really felt for the situation. And yeah, I mean, I, I get that it's too much money and he'll still do time. But it's just the agony of knowing that. And, and it really is driven home by the next scene where they have, they show him talking to Alan Graham's girlfriend. So Alan Graham had a girlfriend. He wasn't homosexual. And it was just, he met him. Then it was he was the the guy who was addicted to drugs that was shooting up. So it was just the guy was in a bad place. He happened to run into Nilsson and then Nilsson killed him. He had to tell Graham's girlfriend that, yes, we know that he killed Nilsson killed him, but we can't add him to the at that point. They said we can't add him to the list of his victims like he won't get charged for him to see her reaction. It just I mean, I'm, I'm like getting goosebumps is just to know that those families there are still like, I think, eight unidentified to know that their families will never know what happened to them is just really fucking sad. So they handled I think they handled that really well. It is sad because, well, and, and Nilsson, the one thing he cared about was his dog. He kept asking after his dog finally finds out that his dog was put down. But she was older. She took ill. So they thought it would be kinder to put her down than to let her suffer. So that made me sad, too. It upset Des, but I thought, like, in the show, I really thought, like, if he finds out that they put his dog down, he's going to stop talking because that's going to piss him off. But he actually takes it into stride, and, and later he actually stops talking for completely different reasons. He gets another solicitor, and it comes to trial, and he pleads not guilty, and everybody's floored. Everybody's like, he's admitted he did it. He's telling us about these. How the fuck is he claiming not guilty? So that's the end of the second episode. Well, the last episode, you're going into it like how, you know, how is this trial going to go and what are they going to show in the trial? And Des says he never planned to kill them. He thought about going to the cops, but then survival instinct kicked in and he thought, well, you know, I'm not going to kill again. And then if it wasn't for the dog, it might be different. They go through the they don't have to prove him insane, just abnormality at the time of murder or if it was premeditated. Brian is they show Brian talking to Jay again. Jay's like, look, if they say he's insane then he might go to a mental institution in 15 years and get out. And you know he's going to do it again. First, Brian's like, he's like, well, he sent me 50 journals. And that is a thing. He did write 50 journals. So he's like, he sent me 50 journals of stuff. And Jay's like, well, you have to you have to share that with us. We have to be able to, maybe there's something in there that shows it's premeditated. We have to do something to put him away because if he gets out, then he will kill. In the show, he convinces Brian to share the journals. They go and talk to Carl Stoddard. He goes through where he thought it was a dream. Dennis Nelson told us that this happened to you. And so we want we want to hear what you think. And he's like, well, no, that, that didn't really happen. And that's when he goes through, well, I was asleep and he had warned me in the sleeping bag. He was on top of a sleeping bag. The zipper was broken and he warned me about the zipper. And he's like, I thought it was kind of weird, but I was really, I was drunk and, you know, tired. So, you know, he's like, well, how can I get caught in a zipper if I'm not in the sleeping bag? In their minds, that sounded like premeditation because later he tries to strangle him with that zipper. There's that. He just said he was asleep and he woke up and then felt the dog licking him and he thought it was a dream. And the cops are like, you know, well, then they say about the bath. And that's when he says, oh, shit, 
I hadn't really told anyone about the bath. How did you know about the bath? And that's when he realizes it wasn't a dream. And he's fucking freaked out. He's like, I can't go on trial. I can't deal with this. Like, this is too much. Des is offended that his place is called the House of Horrors. Because, again, he gets on these, he has these moral high grounds that he sticks to. First psychiatrist that they show interviewed said that he felt he was sane. And the thing is, the defense basically made him look like a bitch. And that actually is, is how it went in real life, too. They have another scene with Graham's girlfriend. And they show her she actually goes to the trial. Even though he's not being convicted of Graham, she's there to, you know, be part of it. They have Stuart on the stand. So... Stuart says, he goes through the story again. He says, he gave me vodka. He asked me if I wanted to go to bed. I said, no. I woke up, had my ankles tied. I fought him off. He said, take my money. He stayed for another drink. Well, then the defense is like, wait a second. Did you say that he introduced himself as Dennis? And the guy's like, yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. He never does that. Everything is Des. He goes by Des for everything. Then he said, you said he had vodka? And he's like, yeah. No, he only drinks rum. And then he says, you said you knew the house number. And he's like, yeah, because the number was on the house. And he's like, there's no number on the house. I think that you are have a tabloid that you're going to sell your story and you're telling these details so you can make money off the story. And it sucks because it's he did have a story that he was selling to a tabloid. So even though that stuff happened, it's those details that he got wrong that they basically were just like, well, he doesn't count. I needed another witness. And Jay goes to Carl Carl doesn't want to do it, but Jay's like, I'm sorry, I'm. we will subpoena you. Like, we need you. We need this guy behind bars. And I know that it's devastating for you to have to do this, but we need you. They do show Carl in court. They keep having to ask him to speak up, which is what they describe in the book, is that he's so soft-spoken and he's nervous that they have to keep asking him to speak up. He mentions the... He asked if I had a family. He said, don't get caught in the zipper. I woke up to him strangling me. And now again, the asking if I have a family and not getting caught in the zipper, those are supposed to show premeditation. Because if you're saying, does he have a family? And he's like, no, I don't have a family. Then that's like, okay, he doesn't have a family. I can kill him. Or like, oh, don't get caught in that zipper. Is that later if he gets caught in the zipper, then he can say, you know. Well, then as he tells his devastating story of what happened to him, Fence is like, "Um, so is it true that you're Carl LaFox, the female impersonator? Now, I'm sorry, I have a side note. I don't know if that's actually what his stage name was, but it's interesting because I live with Todd the Fox. So it's funny to have him being Carl at La Fox, the female impersonator. But it's obvious what they're doing here. So, like, oh, you're a female impersonator? Mm-hmm. Like proving that he's not a reliable witness because he is a deviant. And then they're like, oh, well, did you say that he heated the room and he took care of you? while you were feeling bad and then he walks you to the station how do you you know so isn't that weird why would he try to kill you if he was doing that and the poor guy he's just like i i don't know and he's like is he my murderer or is he my savior and that's just fucking striking just the whole idea of he tried to kill him but then he helped him survive so how fucked up is that and how fucked are you gonna be if that happens to you and what's also striking is to really drive the point home about these social um, implications is that they show as carl's walking outside someone yells out he should have killed you because obviously he's homosexual and a female impersonator so he shouldn't be allowed to live and that just really shows the climate of how it was for people back then and uh, well and to some extent even now that mentality and why people wouldn't come forward because you would get things said to you like he should have killed you instead of pointing at the murderer like oh hey maybe he shouldn't be killing people it's no it's okay because you're gay and it's so that's uh, another thing that they were really good at underlining in this in the book i really felt that brian was kind of leaning more towards being kind of on the fence of some things that he did weren't sane 
But he's and I believe he he says he was, quote, morally mad. It's not like so black and white. But in the show, the Brian in the show says to the cop, he's not insane. He knew what he was doing. So, again, this is where they weren't doing they weren't representing the Brian message in real life. And this also is important because it shows the agenda because they could if they were being neutral, they wouldn't have him say anything like that. They would have him remain like ambiguous because they want you to draw your own conclusions like is he sane is he not insane but by having that character say he knew what he was doing the show is showing its side and what it wants you to think so i found that very interesting is because they were very obviously trying to point you in the direction of he is sane they mentioned that his only visitor was a biographer wasn't a religious any kind of religious person or anybody else and that he showed no remorse the jury rules that he's guilty on all counts and he gets life and he makes the comment, you know, it's a good thing you got me because I could never stop. It would have been 150 people, not 15. Then it shows after Brian has written the book and shown shown Des the draft, of course, because this is the guy who wrote 50 fucking journals. He hands <laughs> Brian Masters a, a journal and says, I hope you don't mind, but I have a few notes. And he's looking at it and it's like, fucking this book is just filled. And he says, I am upset about one thing. You don't name the victims. And that's a disservice. That is disrespectful that you don't name the victims by name. And he's like, well, I was trying to protect them and protect their families. And he's like, no, you need to put their names out there because me taking their names away, me killing them, I took them away. And, and that was disrespectful. If you don't tell people their names, then you're stealing their identities even more. You need to say their names. So that is just that's the thing is it's just like he has this weird morality where he, you know, he's. He's for the the underdog. He's for these social justice things. So he lives in this like dichotomy of being the guy who kills them, but also being the guy who wants them rem remembered for their sake. And it's not necessarily he wants them remembered because I'm the one who killed them, because then he would just be like, you know, their names don't matter. What matters is I killed them. It's he wants their identities. Although that being said, he did say the book should be called Des. And Masters is like, no, it shouldn't be called that. It's not about you. This is about learning about your experience and trying to figure out why you did those things and trying to learn about people and trying the exercise of figuring out so that way maybe we can see something in the future in other people. This isn't necessarily about you. This is about, you know, and so he's like, it's not going to be called Des. And then Des is like, you know, everyone's told their version of my story. When will I get my turn? And then there's a note at the end that in 2006, the first victim was ID'd as 14-year-old Stephen Holmes with DNA and that there were eight victims ID'd. I did look up some stuff because I was curious. I did see that um, he di apparently died in 2018 from a stomach aneurysm. Masters, I read an article that Masters wrote and someone said, well, did he ask you about yourself? Did you guys have a friendship? And he's like, no, no it was not a friendship. He's like, he never asked me anything because it never occurred to him to listen. And people would frequently say that Nilsson spoke at them, that he didn't talk to them. He spoke at them, that he was known to be long winded. And I mean, people would literally put newspapers up in front of their faces and he would keep going. He does talk about the difference between comprehending versus understanding. And that is something that Master said, is that there's a difference between comprehending and understanding. And that sounds like it's pedantic nonsense. But sometimes language, you have to try to be very specific with language, language because concepts are so complex that even like comprehend, it's so I, it's like saying, I get why you miss your grandpa. So you, you're empathetic. So comprehension is basically like empathy. So I feel I can feel inside why you feel this way. But when when it talks about him snuggling a dead body and taking out their intestines, I understand intellectually that he did those things. So mentally, I understand it. But emotionally, I don't. 
because I can't empathize with that. So the idea is I I will never understand him because I will never be able to empathize with those actions because I would I don't see myself being able to pull organs out of someone and, you know, in someone's life. And it is a very important thing to have that distinction. And, and they did. That is something that he said that they allude to in the show. He does confirm that he did not have names in the book, that he had numbers because he wanted to protect the innocent and their families. And Des did tell him, you need to put their names. So that that was confirmed. That did happen. And then again, he says in this article that was from 2020, he says he was morally mad. You know, he's like they ruled him and ruled him sane, but he was morally mad. So that is an interesting, another interesting distinction is that to have the, um, he's saying he could be sane, but he's, but morally mad. So again, you know, there's just all this that goes into it and I'm going to stop recording. All right. This is a, it looks like this is going to have to be a two-parter. So I'm sorry. I was going to try to get through all of it, but I still have to talk about Cold Light of Day and the documentary and compare things. So I'm going to end here. And then I will take it back up and have a part two. I appreciate you hanging out. I look forward to finishing up. There's still <laughs> still some stuff to talk about. Tune in next time. And as always, thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not. As long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Son of a book. Son of a book. God damn it.